0: This is One Universe at a Time. I'm Brian Koberlein. Those familiar stains on our coffee tables are always the same shape. What makes them a ring instead of a circle or a random blob? On our show today is Dr. Kara Maki, an assistant professor of mathematics at the Rochester Institute of Technology. She's going to explain to us the physics of the coffee ring. One of the things I notice, and I'm a pretty avid coffee drinker, but when you spill coffee on the counter or something and you let it dry, it doesn't dry over the entire area. It tends to form a ring. It tends to go to the edges. I'm not really sure why that is.
1: It's really surprising because if you think about your coffee as it starts, the solute, that's what you're seeing, the dark ring, it's uniform, right? And then you just let this coffee dry and then it everything migrates and it ends up at the edges. So it is quite peculiar. And that's what sort of sparked my interest in trying to understand this problem. I read this really interesting paper written by Robert Deegan and all his, there's a group of people working on this, and they did a bunch of different experiments to try to understand why does this happen, right? So they tried changing the substrate, right? So maybe if I spill coffee on a, on a different substrate, does it not, form this ring or right. maybe if I could somehow change the composition of my coffee so the solute particles are big, right, would the ring not form? And, and what they found is that this ring is really robust. This drying pattern is really robust. I can explain to you the mechanism if that's what you it, want. It
0: seems to... very counterintuitive.
1: Yeah, it does seem really counterintuitive. So they found two very important ingredients that I think that everyone can understand. So the important part is that the thing has to be evaporating, right? So it has to be mm-hmm. drying. And there has to be drying near the edge of your coffee droplet. So that's called the contact line. So in regards to the contact line, they found that the only time this pattern would appear is if the contact line is actually pinned. So while this coffee is evaporating away, the edge is actually not moving. It's not right. moving so, in, which we what you would think would happen, right? Right. As something is evaporating, you would think that there's less volume, right? So therefore, right. the edge has to move in.
0: Is this a surface tension thing? It, it kind of um, holds there. Or?
1: I don't think people know the answer. So some people argue that you could think of the surface as being really rough, mm-hmm. and perhaps that's what's pinning the contact line. That, or some people argue maybe the solute, or you could think of the solute as a particle. Perhaps that's pinning the contact line, but. I think that's still a debate about what's happening there. So,
0: okay. to get, but as long as it's fixed, and that's that's one of the things you have to have.
1: That's right. So what's happening is the contact line is fixed, right? But you're losing fluid there, right? But it's not moving in, right? So there mm-hmm. has to be a flow within inside this droplet of coffee that's carrying the particles from the center of the drop to the edge.
0: Stuff has to evaporate. And because that point is moving, it's actually kind of flowing out towards the
1: edge? Imagine the edge is fixed, but it's losing mass, right? right? And so somehow you have to replenish that fluid that's being lost. That's the flow inside the droplet, right? That's carrying okay. all these particles to the edge and forming this coffee ring. So Deegan was able to sort of, in co-workers, were able to tease this out in some experiments that they did. For example, if they took their coffee and spilled it on a table, but then they covered it, they covered mm-hmm. the droplet, and they covered it with a container that only had a hole in the tippity, in the top. In the of, top, in the, the cent- top. Yeah, in the center of the drop, right? What they were doing there is they were changing how, how evaporation was happening, and they mm-hmm. were only letting, more or less, the drop was mostly evaporating in the center right. and not at the edge, and they found that that would lead to a uniform pattern. So they could do these nice, simple experiments to show that you really need evaporation at the edge then what they did to show that the pinning was important is they spilled their coffee on on teflon <laughs> <laughs> and then they showed that the contact line no longer stays pinned right so okay. there's something special about this smooth teflon that allows as it's evaporating the edge actually moves in right mm-hmm. because there's less volume there so so those are the two sort of experiments they did to verify that these two things weren't important they did a bunch of other experiments to verify that the other things weren't important right
0: so so how does that connect to what you've been doing
1: so I read this paper I was really excited about it and there was one paragraph in the paper that got me really interested and and something that they couldn't explain so they did all these experiments and mind you, Well, I'm sure they did a little, some of the experiments with coffee, but they were Mm -hmm. mostly thinking, (laughs) they were mostly using water, and inside the water they put different size particles, and the particles are, right, to mimic the solute of the coffee. When they used larger size particles, what they found is sometimes, during the drying process, that the particles would migrate to the top of the drop and form a skin. (laughs) And they weren't sure, they just had a whole paragraph commenting that the skin appeared when they used larger size particles. So when I say larger, they're only a micron um, in diameter, these these spheres that they right. put so in. A thousandth of a millimeter. And that's right, that's right. So I, I tried to look up a reference and I found out that a grain of sand is 75 microns. So hopefully so that helps people. Tinier get,
0: than sand. <laughs> tinier
1: than sand, right? But that was considered large. Right. right, And so they found the skin formed and they didn't understand why. So that was what I set out to try to identify. So what is the mechanism causing the skin to form? Now they still got the coffee ring. So what would happen is the skin would form early on and then it would break up and all the particles would go to the that's edge. That's interesting. Yeah. You
0: would think maybe that the larger particles, you wouldn't form the edge because the flow wouldn't move the particles as much.
1: Ah, yes, but they're still tiny enough that they just- They're still small enough, enough that, that, that works, they, yeah, okay. Yeah, so that's what got me, this one paragraph in this paper that I was reading got me really excited about this, and I thought, well, maybe I can use some math to try to understand. What Can I tease out this mechanism? Can I determine what it is using some mathematical modeling?
0: That's kind of a classic thing in, in science where they're they're looking at one particular process and there's this one little strange thing that they just kind of make in passing and somebody else goes, YOINK
1: <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'll take
0: that. Let's see what that can do with that. Yes, yes. So so what did what did you find in this aspect of forming the layers?
1: Yeah, so I went after trying to model it. Basically what the model suggests is that at the interface, so you have this droplet of liquid that's sitting on top of the substrate. It has particles in it, and it's evaporating. And you can think of this interface as like a windshield wiper. So Mm -hmm. as it's evaporating, the interface is moving down, right? It's getting, Mm -hmm. right? And it's collecting particles at the surface. It's collecting. As it shrinks
0: down, it's actually gathering more particles because there's nowhere for them to go.
1: Exactly. When these particles start to pile up, you can imagine that a mechanism of movement for them would be diffusion, right? So if many of them start to pile up, they form a concentration gradient, but maybe there's a better way I can try to describe that, right? Um, And so then diffusion starts to kick in, and these particles start to get... Pushed out from this region. Right. They, they
0: want to be there, but there's not enough space for them to be exactly. there, so they get pushed out of the way. Then. Exactly, okay. exactly.
1: So it's this competition between these two effects, right? So you can imagine the interface is collecting them, like a windshield wiper, mm-hmm. right? And then diffusion is trying to kick them out of the way, right? Getting them out of this small area. When you have larger size particles, diffusion is weaker. And so this effect is is weaker, and so the evaporation is sort of winning. This windshield wiper effect is sort of winning and, and is collecting. The particles at the interface. So at least that's what our model hints at. It suggests that's the mechanism. Now,
0: so bigger particles get there, and then they're not moving.
1: They're not. They can't. They can't diffuse as quickly as small, smaller okay. particles. It reminds
0: me kind of if you had a rock concert, you know, and all the kids want to get to the front, but <laughs> if you had all these six foot th- tall football players or something in the front, it's like, oh, not moving.
1: Right, right, right. right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. They don't get out of the way. They don't get out
0: of the way. Yeah,
1: right. So that's what our model suggests. But whenever you sit down to write a mathematical model you have to decide what you think the important physics are because you can't include everything in your model otherwise it would be way too big and way too complicated to even to begin to study. We did leave out a bunch of effects that could perhaps be playing a role but this is what at least where we're starting right so now you could imagine designing some sort of experiments to test this hypothesis right, right? Or so or now you have or something like some simulations yeah. right so now we have a hypothesis of what's happening.
0: Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah. What I find interesting about it is that it, it really kind of shows how different disciplines can interact. I mean, my background's in physics and astronomy and your background's in mathematics. Right. And in physics, we tend to look at, mathematics are the, the tool builders. They, they go off and contemplate weird, abstract things. And then when they come up with some useful tool, we'll grab it and actually use it in the real sciences. Right. And yeah. what you're doing is grabbing the physics and using it in mathematics so you're coming at it from a different approach exactly. and and still coming to a solution that models reality.
1: The nice thing that I like about my work is that I do get to inter- interact with a bunch of different people, right? So I can talk to chemical engineers or maybe mechanical engineers that are doing these experiments right so right. I did have an undergraduate try to do these experiments here at RIT <laughs> um, so we tried to use our the confocal microscope here to try to image these particles and see if we could see the skin form and she did a great job getting that project up and running but we Anyone who's an experimentalist will understand this, right? You have to have the environment just right, and there's all these different parameters that you're yeah. playing around with, and we could never quite see this skin form. We couldn't get the machine to do what we wanted it to do and right. get the environment to do what we wanted it oh, that, to do. That's
0: pretty common in experimental physics, though. Right. We think of it as you set up the lab, and then you get success. You say, Eureka, and you're done, and it's not. It's a lot of you know tweaking and swear words. and.
1: Sometimes it doesn't work at all. Right, right.
0: Right. (laughs) Which uh, for me has always been that way with math, you know, it's like, well, you try this math. No, it doesn't work. Insert profanity here.
1: Okay. Try (laughs) something else. (laughs) Right. 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 I mean, I think, you know, it's a, it's a great project. We should start collaborating with some people around here that could help us with the experiments and sort of guide us a little better than. You know, I'm a trained mathematician, right? Right, right. <laughs> I think it so. really
0: kind of shows that mathematics is broader than I think what a lot of people imagine, mm-hmm. because we think of mathematicians as, the, you know, the fuzzy-haired person, some old guy who who talks to himself while walking down the sidewalk, right. and and it's really not. You know, yeah, there are, there are people who work in pure pure mathematics. That's just for the sake of mathematical understanding, right. but a lot of mathematicians are actually much more applied yeah. and look at real-world things. In some sense, it's it's like you're doing you're a physicist, but you're in the math department.
1: Yes, I, I do. I feel like sometimes I wear many different hats. Um, I'm talking to eye doctors or um, engineers. You know, all different sorts of research scientists and trying to tease out what the important thing is. Of the problem that they're interested in, and see right. how, how can I turn this into math, and and maybe give them some insight. Right, the beautiful thing about a mathematical model is you can make it do unrealistic things. <laughs> right, I mean, right. you can sort of test the limits that you can't within an experiment. Right, and then you right. can rule out certain things. So
0: when one of the things I see with mathematics is that it's what gives you precision. Mm-hmm. It, it is what connects you from an idea to a theory. Because you can come up with an idea. Well, I kind of think this, and that kind of makes some sense, and it agrees with what I've seen. But you really need the mathematics to be able to say, at what rate does this happen? When does this change to that? In order to have that precision, you need the language of precision which mathematics gives you. Yeah.
1: The beautiful thing, too, about thinking about applications is sometimes the application informs the math. You Mm -hmm. know, like it pushes a new theory out and sometimes the math informs the the physics or the application so it really goes both ways you know like the mathematics community is growing because you know we are working on these applications and we are trying to make the math agree with what's being seen, right? Right, or, right Or trying to use the right math tools to explain what's being seen. so
0: it's much wider than you think. I right. mean they're in finance and physics and everything else. Right. Yeah the, the influence of mathematics and, and physics, for example, I mean the classic one is Newton who developed calculus right. or one of the people who developed calculus in order to be able to do physics. Uh, I reminded the other way around of Riemann, who did curved spaces rather than Euclidean spaces. And of course, all the physicists were like, yeah, that's fine, go off and do your abstract mathematics. And then Einstein comes along and says, guess what, Riemann was right. Oh, can we use your tools now? <laughs> right,
1: right. <laughs> we start
0: all going after all this right. non-Euclidean geometry right. so we can do physics.
1: Yeah, so it's a really fun area to work in.
0: So, so in terms of a mathematics area, what do you think is the, kind of the most interesting area of mathematics for you?
1: this isn't a traditional discipline right mm-hmm. but for me i think the really exciting part is is the actual modeling right so i start with this real world problem and i end up writing down equations that describe it and and I have to go through this whole process to do this, right? I have to I have to start with the basics, right? Introduce a variable, right? So what's okay. the function that I'm going to look at that's describing this situation, right? What does right. it represent? What are its units, right? All, all these basic things. What's the important physics, right? What's the important things do I want to start with? So most of the problems that I work with, I always start with F equals MA, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm starting with basic physics and balancing forces and, turning this into a beautiful mathematical equation and only keeping the terms around that are big and matter, right? So that's really a fun part of math.
0: You're listening to One Universe at a Time. I'm your host, Brian Koberlein. We've been talking with Dr. Kira Maki, an assistant professor of mathematics at the Rochester Institute of Technology, about the physics of coffee rings. In the second half of our show, Dr. Maki gets to turn the tables and interview me, She would like to know what gravitational waves are and how they might be detected.
1: So gravitational waves, they come up in the news a lot. What are these waves?
0: Gravitational waves are something that came out of general relativity. So one of the things about general relativity is that gravity isn't just simply a force, it's a curvature of space and time. So that when you have mass in a region, it will bend space around it. (sighs) And so if you imagine Uh, a mass that's moving, say a star orbiting another star, as they're moving they are creating ripples in that curvature of space and time and those radiate out from this area as gravitational waves.
1: Very interesting. So I guess you answered my next question of what produces gravitational waves, right? Any, technically any mass,
0: <laughs> but what we like to look for is large masses. So neutron stars or white dwarfs or something like that would be strong masses close together.
1: And when you say look for, what do you mean? Look Like who's looking for them? And
0: There are various teams trying to find a, a direct detection of gravitational waves. And, and the basic idea is that if you have a gravitational wave passing through an area, then because it's a ripple in space as it goes through, the distances between objects would shift very slightly you would get this this kind of oscillation of distance so that as the gravitational wave goes through, you would see this ripple and then you would say, aha, that's a gravitational wave that we've measured directly.
1: So can I think about it like two buoys or something and I throw a really big rock?
0: That would be a good analogy, yeah. If you you had, for example, you tossed a rock into a pond and then you had two small buoys next to each other, when the ripple went by, you would see them oscillate relative to each other and you'd be able to say, ah, oh, there's there's a gravitational wave.
1: So how do you see this oscillation, or how is it measured? Or- this is the
0: real challenge, because if you calculate how much these things would oscillate, you're talking about the fraction of a width of an atom. Wow. And so in order to do this, you have to apply statistics and analyze the data out of the noise. The setup typically is a, a laser interferometer. So what you would do is you would have a, a mirror and then other mirrors, say four kilometers away down a long tube and then you bounce light waves off of these mirrors and if those mirrors oscillate a little bit then the time for the light to go back and forth would shift and in the interference pattern that you would see would shift and so you try and measure that small oscillation with laser light
1: how do you go about small vibrations rations.
0: somebody walking in, in the general vicinity of it can cause oscillations. Since, since they're so tiny, any of these, you know, a car driving by, anything, would cause these things to, to oscillate. And so what you have to do is you have to measure the oscillation of these things. And then you have to subtract out all of the noise. And the real challenge, both just from an experimental standpoint and from a mathematical standpoint, is that the signal is on the same order as the noise. So it's kind of like trying to hear a conversation in the middle of a hurricane.
1: Can they be seen as controversial? Or? Well, I think
0: I think some people would see them as controversial. In In astrophysics, we wouldn't see them as controversial okay. because we have never had any direct evidence of gravitational waves. We right. haven't been able to detect them directly. But we do have a lot of indirect evidence. One comes from just the fact that general relativity works over and over and over again. All I the see. experimental tests that we've done of general relativity works. And one of the predictions of general relativity is that there should be gravitational waves. We also have indirect evidence of gravitational waves if you look at pulsars. Pulsars are these things that are dense neutron stars and as they rotate they will flash beams of of radio energy or some other type of energy towards us. Mm -hmm. And so we can hear them as you know pop, 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 very, very, very precisely as they rotate. Well, we can measure precisely how they're moving because of that. So if you have a pulsar that happens to be orbiting another large star or a neutron star, what we would call a binary pulsar, then as that oscillates, you can measure the period of its orbit very precisely. And we've had some pulsars where we've seen this, and if you measure them over time, you can actually measure that their period is decaying, their orbit is decaying. And they're decaying because, according to general relativity, the gravitational waves are radiating away energy. Uh And so they have less energy, so they start in-spiraling. They start spiraling into a smaller orbit. We've found shifts in periods of binary pulsars that match the predictions of general relativity. So we have indirect evidence of it, both just from the fact that the theory is valid and that we're seeing the effects of gravitational waves. But we haven't detected them yet.
1: Do you think that we're going to be able to do it in the next few years? I'm not sure if we'll
0: do it in the next few years. There are people that are hopeful that we'll do it in the next few years. There is a project called LIGO, the Light Interferometer Gravitational Observer. They have just revamped the detectors on that. And there's a lot of confidence that we should find gravitational waves with this new run. And so, you know, it's very likely that in the next few years we'll have gravitational waves. There's another project that's been proposed called LISA, the Light Interferometer Space Observer, which would be set in space and would be much more sensitive. That almost certainly would detect gravitational waves. So if we don't get it with LIGO, we'll get it with LISA. It's one of these things that we think eventually we will be able to detect gravitational waves but it's been very frustrating trying to
1: I see is there something holding back the Lisa project or is it just is it money or it's
0: it's always a money anything. thing yeah. yeah i mean the it takes time to actually get the funding and to build this and there's a lot of projects under competition and mm-hmm. so you know, LISA is one of those things where LIGO will make its full run first, and then I think if LIGO detects gravitational waves, you'll see a priority for LISA, because we'll have a proof of concept, we'll know that the gravitational waves are there, and then we can start looking at it to do gravitational astronomy, I which see. is what we really Brilliant. want to
1: do. Are gravitational waves related to the Big Bang, or how the universe started? Or
0: Yeah, there are some things with gravitational waves and early cosmology, because The type of gravitational waves that we're trying to detect with LIGO and things are large masses orbiting each other. So in spiraling black holes or neutron stars, something in which they're very close and orbiting very quickly. So they would create a strong regular gravitational wave, something that we could detect fairly easily. But we know that there are other gravitational waves out there. One of them is from early cosmic inflation. One of the big questions about the Big Bang is why why is the universe so uniform? Mm. If it started very hot and dense and, and expanded, it didn't have enough time, according to the Big Bang model, to, to become even in temperature. So <laughs> when we look at something like the cosmic microwave background, that background thermal remnant of the Big Bang, it's extremely uniform. It has small fluctuations, but it doesn't have big fluctuations. We don't know why. And one of the ideas to solve this problem is called early cosmic inflation, what we call cosmic inflation. And the idea with that is that when it was very dense and very hot, it entered a period of very rapid inflation. So that it basically reached a uniform temperature and then expanded really quickly and then entered the normal range of inflation that we see now. We don't have any direct evidence of that, evidence we could get from that. Is that if you take a very small area and you cause it to expand very quickly, it almost rings like a bell. You get these gravitational waves, and, thong, and these these gravitational waves from inflation should be out there if inflation is true. And this is where the Bicep two experiment, the thing that had a big controversy right, about, right. we've discovered the Big Bang. And right, stuff, right. And then, That's what I was thinking. About. Yeah, and and that is trying to detect the the evidence of those gravitational waves. Mm-hmm. And again, it's frustratingly on the noise level because right, the right. same type of signal that we would get from gravitational waves, we'd also get from things like dust.
1: So different projects are trying to detect gravitational waves from different sources. I right. didn't realize that right. when I right. was assumed everyone was going after the same well, <laughs> source. Yeah, I mean, and, and so they haven't even been able to find it for these stars right
0: gravity is very weak on a basic scale there's a lot of things that can interact more strongly on a large scale gravity wins in the end because it's going to be the fundamental force but on all these small gravitational wave levels the signal is so tiny compared to everything else that it, it almost always gets washed out it's so hard to pull that signal out of the data because there's so much noise
1: right there are some people here at RIT, right, trying mm-hmm. to detect these gravitational waves. And, and, exactly. Right. Some of them are in the school of mathematical sciences, well, right? So they yeah, and, that's, and so this goes back to our conversations. This is. I mean, about- it, it
0: really does come back to the the physics is pretty established. You know, mm-hmm. we know according to the physical models, we know what the gravitational waves should be doing. And so to really detect them, it's a matter of data analysis. That's where the real power is coming in because we're collecting data and we have a whole bunch of data. But it's a matter of being able to distinguish that signal from the noise While not tricking yourself,
1: right?
0: You know, because if you look hard enough for a pattern, you can find a pattern anywhere. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But you have to make sure that it's the right pattern that we really have detected. This.
1: So are people? Are any people doing simulations? Is that also going on? There are. There's
0: actually with a lot of these projects. One of the things that happens is within the data you will embed false signals. So in other words, you take the same data and then you'll incorporate a a fake signal in it and see if your statistics and software Ah, can pull pull out. out. So it might be where, okay, I have the data, I'm gonna put this little signal in there and I'm gonna hand it to you. Let's see what you can find. There (laughs) may or may not be a signal there. And you don't know what that signal is, but we'll see if you can pull it out. out. And so they do that to test what the models would be in terms of, okay, if that signal's there, can you pull it out and distinguish it? I see. They have some success with that it's difficult, it's a really challenging problem.
1: They know what the signal should look like. Is that true in Basically, theory? yeah. I mean, so they we, don't need to use simulations to say, simulating these two stars going around each other to try to determine what the...
0: They do simulate what those signals would be because in order to do this, you have to do uh, general relativity computationally. So when you have two large masses close together, it's not just a matter of writing it on the chalkboard. You really do have to go into the details of, of supercomputers and model what these gravitational waves would be. I see. General relativity is set. We're not modifying general relativity. Right. And we know the types of masses, the size of of black holes and neutron stars and things that would orbit each other. Okay. So it's a matter of if they were this close, if they were orbiting in this way, what signal would be produced? And that's just a lot of computational physics trying to figure that out.
1: So let's suppose they do detect this a gravitational wave. Mm-hmm. So what's next? What does this do for your field?
0: The really thing that we'd really love to be able to do is gravitational astronomy. So if we could detect gravitational waves on a regular basis mm-hmm. with a good sensitivity, okay. then, then we could see the effects of phenomena through gravity waves that we wouldn't necessarily see otherwise.
1: So you could predict what's happening out.
0: Right, or we can measure what's, what's happening. happening. So out. One, of, one of the big challenges we have in astronomy is that we are in the middle of a galaxy And that galaxy is filled with stars and dust, which is great if you want to look at stars and dust. (laughs) But if you want to look beyond our galaxy, one of the big things, there's a large section of the sky, which is towards the center of the Milky Way, that's called the Zone of Avoidance. And it's called that because there's nothing but gas and dust in that direction. And we can use some things like infrared or radio astronomy to kind of peer through that. But we're still limited because it's absorbing some of this stuff. So, what we'd love to be able to do is be able to detect things beyond that. I see. Gravitational astronomy would give us a chance to do that because gravity waves aren't shielded. When gravity waves go through a material, they keep going. They can't be absorbed by anything, they can't be blocked by things. I see. So if there were two merging black holes on the other side of, of the galaxy through the zone of avoidance, With gravitational astronomy, we could observe it. Wow. And if there were supernovas there behind the dust that we couldn't see, that would create gravitational waves that we could, in principle, observe. It would open up a whole other field. It's almost as if when we developed radio technology and we could then see radio waves— And it opened up what we could do with astronomy. It it gave us the cosmic microwave background. It told us the age of the universe that we couldn't have done before. With optical telescopes, we couldn't do this. So by, by having radio astronomy, it opened up a new field. Gravitational astronomy would open up a whole new field. It would allow us to explore things we just can't do right now. We've been talking with Dr. Karamaki an assistant professor of mathematics at the Rochester Institute of Technology. Our program is produced at RIT by Mark Gillespie with support from the RIT College of Science. I'm your host, Brian Korberlein. Thanks for listening to One Universe at a Time.